if there has ever been a place we can call climate change ground zero. It is Kivalina, Alaska. Welcome to Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. I'm your host, Robert Lundahl, filmmaker and journalist. Temperatures in the Arctic are rising at more than twice the rate of the global average. Results include violent ocean storms, flooding, and erosion beneath the homes at Kivalina. Impacts that have been traumatic to the Barrier Islands, Alaskan Inupiaq community. Sea ice that once protected the island from winter storms no longer forms early enough in the fall to prevent rising waters and storm surge from reaching the island shores. Patchy sea ice also makes winter travel and hunting difficult and dangerous. Kivalina is a village that's located on a, a strip of land that is getting narrower by the day um, from erosion primarily because of the ice continuing to melt uh, due to global warming. Buildings and things are falling into the water. So they're, uh, they're in a designated area as part of the agreement that was made with the, with the, the tribes and the, and the government but they uh, need to move, but the urgency of moving uh, won't be funded until it's actually a disaster area. So mm -hmm. there's just a lot of struggle there. So um, they don't have any centralized or even decentralized uh, sanitation there. And so most people do use what they call a honey bucket. Since Kivalina is limited in size by the encroaching sea, Housing has become scarce, leading to overcrowding and poor sanitation. Currently, residents transport their solid waste to a landfill located just over a mile from town. This poses a contamination threat to fisheries during storms, particularly in the Kivalina Lagoon east of the city. Additionally, the dump site lacks a perimeter fence and draws wild animals, including bears. They live in homes with uh, maybe two or three generations of family members there. And so uh, trying to deal with that on a daily basis is, is burdensome and um, even hauling water. And so they're very careful about how they reuse water as well. This is Robin Carnine of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for joining Robert Lindahl and myself for a campfire conversation on Nature's Touch. Worried about climate change and other environmental issues? So are we. Thanks for tuning in. We all can make a difference. It's a story of multiple existential and compounding problems. The city of Kivalina is a federally recognized tribe the Alaska Native Village of Kivalina. The Alaska Native Village of Kivalina sued ExxonMobil Corporation, eight other oil companies, 14 power companies, and one coal company in a lawsuit filed in federal court in San Francisco on February 26, 2008, claiming that the large amounts of greenhouse gases they emit contribute to global warming that threatens the community's existence. The lawsuit estimated the cost of relocation at $400 million. 
The suit was dismissed by the U.S. District Court on September 30, 2009, on the grounds that regulating greenhouse emissions was a political rather than a legal issue, and one that needed to be resolved by Congress and the administration, rather than by courts. Jeff Hallowell is a former Silicon Valley engineer and entrepreneur who has dedicated time and research to finding a solution. But you had mentioned that the scope and scale of this situation that you began to describe with the lack of sanitation and toilets is common along the west coast of Alaska. And we, we had talked about the Northern Bering Sea um, climate resilience area and efforts to protect that. And, and there are so many challenges. So they're not the only village that is having these problems and villages are being forced to move. Is that correct? Correct. There's about 300 villages that will be uh, subject to uh, the climate uh, change there and will have to move because their villages are being eroded away because they're along the coast and the, and the coast is being taken uh, by, the, by the melting ice. So it's, it's definitely a bigger problem and, it, and it's, it's gonna cost them hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to, to relocate and to move because it's not a, uh, it's an infrastructure that has to be completely uh, rebuilt from the ground up uh, to be able to support these families. Well, one village I know uh, in particular, they had mentioned it was about hundred million just for that one to, to, to move. So you multiply that by the hundreds of villages that need to move and, and it, it gets into the billions uh, very quickly. Right. And so is there kind of a shock and awe factor where nothing's happening because everybody's blown away? Yeah, two, two reasons. One is uh, they're, they've been planning it for years of how they're going to relocate. Even just picking a site and going through that process is very, is very tough. Um, there's a lot of culture and roots to the, where they are right now. And so moving that is really losing some of that culture. So I think that's an important part of it that they're uh, considering. But also there's really a lack of funds. There is no uh, way to fund this until it is, is a physically a disaster, uh, which is obviously too late uh, for us. So that's another uh, factor in there as well, is that um, when it happens, it'll be kind of too late and uh, how are they going to survive for that first year with those temperatures? It's going to be uh, it's going to be tough for those for those people there. Mm -hmm. And just for your knowledge, and maybe you've seen this in some of the podcasts, we've talked to tribal people about the impacts of uh, cultural loss and separation from land base. That it often leads to you know dislocation, um, difficulties for the youth, drug use, alcohol, um, lack of opportunity, these kinds of things. Disconnection from family support, tribal support. Correct, correct. The, the more they get broken up, the more issues they have. And uh, it's really tragic up there, the, meeting some of the families who have lost loved ones due to some of these uh, challenges that they have is, is really hard to see because uh, people are, you know, really nice and compassionate. But there is so much history and culture there that taking them away and breaking that up definitely causes more disruption and more pain uh, for the individuals, especially the younger ones as they're losing that connection uh, to their past. Mm -hmm. And uh, you went up there and rented a house. Can you tell me about that? Sure, so um, we had stayed in a house up there. Um, uh, we found out a, f a few days after we had been there that someone had committed suicide there 
just a few days before. So it was it was tragic. We don't know the, the all the details of that, but um, it's it's a common thing that happens there where we don't really see that here. But um, but people have struggles up there, and uh, and and that's often how they they resolve it, which is which is terrible, terribly and tragic. In 2004, Kivalina sued Canadian mining company, Tech Cominco, operator of the Red Dog Mine, for polluting its drinking water source and subsistence fish resources through their discharge of mine waste into the Woolock River. Tech Cominco settled the suit in 2008 by agreeing to build a wastewater pipeline from the mine to the ocean that would bypass discharging into the Woolock. However, the pipeline was not constructed, and the alternative settlement clause was followed. I definitely had a technology background, as you mentioned, Silicon Valley with companies like Xerox, then Oracle, and Netscape, and uh, then started looking more into healthcare. So my last company before this was uh, Patient Reported Outcomes, really looking at um, respiratory health and also pain and using uh, questionnaires to be able to uh, diagnose that. And so air quality became a, a real passion of mine. I have two uh, boys that have uh, that had asthma issues. And so we started off looking at technologies that could improve air emission quality. Uh, some of it we found was from uh, the processing of, of woody biomass or green biomass that was causing smoke. And um, from there, we got kind of involved with the, the Gates Foundation and their Reinvent the Toilet Challenge, which um, realizing that um, billions of people do not have access to safe sanitation, a lot of that is the treatment of that waste and using a thermal process to do that is a very effective way to uh, remove uh, pathogens uh, from the material and also use it as a soil amendment so that it doesn't uh, go into the into the ocean where it goes now. So in India, they have about 1.3 billion people and about 700 million of them do not have access to a toilet. Uh, there's even safe sanitation is considered a toilet that a, a woman could use that she wouldn't have a fear of being attacked, uh, which is a big problem. A lot of the industries there, they do not provide uh, bathrooms for their employees and even many schools who also do not have uh, bathrooms uh, for the for the staff and, and students as well. So, um, so they just had a, a big issue there where a lot of this then is gets washed away if it doesn't end up in the air blowing around. But uh, people do breathe quite a bit of human waste going around there. Some of that particles in the air is actually from human waste that's going up in there. So, uh, very bad situation. Um, and as far as women and girls, I mean, I think they take the brunt of it because a lot of the sanitation issues get put onto them and they typically do drop out of school uh, around 12, 13 years old because of access to uh, not only just bathrooms, but safe ones. Right. On August 4th, 2011, it was reported that residents of the city of Kivalina had seen a strange orange goo wash up on the shores. According to the Associated Press, tests have been conducted on the substance on the surface of the water in 
Kivalina. Subsequent examination resulted in a declaration that the substance consisted of spores from a possibly undescribed species of rust fungus. The problems that we're trying to solve in India, we're kind of surprised to see that they had similar issues in right here in the United States, primarily in Alaska, where we got called back. The systems that we deploy in India obviously are for a warmer climate, so being able to make technology changes to adapt to the cold climate was uh, really important. Also to have it uh, ins properly insulated and working so that in these cold climates uh, it would work. But there, there is hundreds of villages that need it and uh, we actually joined a group called Launch Alaska. We were part of uh, their cohort to accelerate our technology in Alaska. Um, they're an Anchorage-based company and uh, we're going to be announced soon that we will be part of their um, portfolio, uh, which we're very excited about because we know that sanitation is what we would consider a basic need, uh, you know, shelter, food and water and sanitation, and they don't have it in a lot of those villages. And so for us to be able to provide that and, and give them dignity and a better quality of life. I think that would be uh, something that we would desire to do and put some effort towards it. And we've got the support of Launch Alaska, which we're very excited, excited about as well. So what is the tech? Our technology is um, primarily our controls. So uh, there's a lot of systems out there that are fairly rudimentary. Uh, by, by adding technology to it and sensors, uh, we can manage and uh, handle it and the variability. So handling green waste is not like handling uh, fuel uh, that you would put in your car. It's fairly standard. It's not going to change very much. Um, they know what the energy is. But when you're dealing with green waste, uh, the moisture levels can be different. The uh, energy levels can be different. So how we process it, because our goal is to actually use the energy in the waste to run itself. And our goal is to be completely off grid, to be energy positive, uh, to be carbon negative, uh, and really make sure that um, our system will run when there is no power, that it will generate its own power and run itself. So there's a lot of technology there dealing with um, combined heat and power, uh, the controls to do it, and also uh, the monitoring so that we can have it transmitted to a cell phone or, or, or to a server, somebody that can help support it so that far away, they can be watching it and anticipating things that it needs like maintenance or spare parts, things like that. So it's, a, it's an right. automated, so it is kind of a internet of things uh, solution as well. So it's sure. fairly complex for a, for a small refinery. Right. So you're taking human waste and you're heating it up, right? And that releases volatiles and those volatiles are then used to heat the material coming in because there's a lot of gases, as you see a, a log burning, it's really not the log burning, it's the gases coming off of the log. So the human waste has about the same energy as wood. And so what's left is um, we just try to heat it up um, to a fairly low, low level, um, below what we would consider um, full combustion. Uh, it's called pyrolysis, so it's, it's partial combustion. And uh, what's left is the nutrients and the carbon. And so human waste has about 50% carbon in it. It also has uh, nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, and potassium. And so those nutrients are important to put back into the soil. And so our goal is to try to uh, have regenerative agriculture is, is needed, is that when people are 
eating food, we really have to be trying to get it back into the soil. And that's really important for us is how do we recover nutrients from green waste, keep them out of the landfills, keep them out of the ocean and get it back to the soil that needs it to uh, improve uh, fertility and, and stop erosion. What is biochar? So biochar, which can also be called biocarbon, is basically when you're heating up a material that is uh, organic or from organic, we call it biogenic, could be from organic, and uh, you basically heat up and get rid of all the oils and all of the volatiles. So what's left is a, it's like a kind of like a carbon sponge. And that carbon sponge then has some minerals in it and some uh, nutrients, but also then can absorb other nutrients that are in the soil, hold them to be washed away. And it can also hold water so that water use is less as well. It can be used in a building material. It can be used um, for odor and uh, not only odor in the air, uh, but also odor uh, in, the, in water. So sometimes when water is treated, it still might have a, a smell to it. So you can use it for uh, turbidity and uh, cleaning up the odor as well. So it has many, many uses. Uh, we could go on and talk about biochar probably for an hour, but there's thousands of publications on it every year, but it's kind of an old uh, thing that was used by the Amazonians to, as a way that they could feed their people and keep the soil rich and we're just kind of rediscovering it. So biochar as a name has really only been around since 2006, but it's actually been in practice in a lot of uh, indigenous areas for, for over a thousand years. Wow, that's fascinating to use indigenous technology to solve modern day problems in an indigenous community. We're not really the discoverer of it. All we're trying to do is make it cleaner uh, and make it more um, automated so that um, you know, you don't have the emissions from it. That's really our technology is uh, our patents are really based on reducing the emissions uh, while using that energy because emissions smoke is fuel and using that energy to actually uh, create therm uh, to dry the material as it's coming in, but also to create electricity. It's a multi-level solution for a community. It is, it in is. Terms of agriculture, is. energy, and remediation of waste. Uh, sinking carbon in the ground and I wanted to ask you does human waste release carbon to the atmosphere as well you mentioned it blows around so I thought perhaps that was true it does it does so for open defecation for all the folks that, are, that are, don't have access to a toilet all of that carbon is then going back up into the air so we're not putting it back into the ground which is really important also when you fix it as char it has very durable so a regular fertilizer and even compost will only last a few years, where the char could last in 800 to 1,000 years. As the soil content or carbon content goes down from, let's say, 10%, 8 to 10%, which is a good level, down to about 1%, 1% is basically a desert. So as we're pulling carbon out of the ground, um, we're basically creating a desert from the land that we have, unless we have a way to put it in and the durability of that carbon is extremely important. In the past, forest fires and brush fires and fires in the plains used to uh, help put that carbon back in the ground, but we've kind of changed that natural cycle. So we need a way to um, basically return to that cycle. So again, it's things that indigenous 
people have used for, for many, many years. And we're just trying to uh, reinstate that um, as a kind of a decentralized solution, which is, which is very important. Right. That's interesting. We talked about that in terms of technology development, how, you know, we started out with um, glass houses in the technology world and mainframe computers and a kind of priesthood of operators. And we, now we wind up with supercomputers in our pocket. That's right. Uh, not too long ago, yes, everything was centralized, even the computing world and the same, but, but in the way we deal with our waste, um, you know, even back to Roman times, uh, thousands of years ago, uh, we're still doing things in a centralized man manner. And we've realized even through computing that decentralized uh, works best. And we believe that every person could process and manage their own uh, waste uh, just like they did before those times. And, uh, but right now the infrastructure in the US is really based around, you know, a lot of the upgrades and the technology and the infrastructure happened around World War II right after there. And it was a centralized based solution primarily for small cities uh, and large cities, but rural and peri-urban, they don't really have any solutions. So they're, they're forced to bring their waste to a larger facility. And so uh, what we really need in, in, in the United States is a, a focus also on a decentralized strategy that we need to be looking at how are we going to handle waste and not move it around? How are we going to reduce that carbon footprint? How are we going to take those nutrients from those uh, communities and put it back into the ground where it belongs? So I think there's some policy that has to happen there and a different way of thinking, really transformational thinking to say, we've got to look at other models. We can't just have centralized models. We have to do decentralized. It's obviously worked in the computing world and we've got to start applying some of those principles to the, to the way we deal with our waste. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of pressure on the Bering Sea as an important um, funnel, actually, for marine life from the Pacific to the Arctic and, and vice versa, depending on the time of year. And, it, it, you know, we have a plankton factory and a biological nursery and, you know, a lot of complex interactions. Um, in the Bering Sea. So is runoff from waste and things like oil tanks falling over like our friend Howard is working with and, and remediation of spills, that kind of thing. Is, is the runoff problem um, concerning in the Bering Sea? It is. Um, we see that in other, in other areas as well, but um, we know that in freshwater, um, human waste especially will cause, can cause algae blooms. Uh, any type of phosphorus runoff can do that, which can be deadly as well. And when those nutrients are coming in from the land or from the landfills and going into the water, um, it is changing the ecosystem. Uh, we know that when polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons or PAHs are going in the water, even off in, off of, in the Puget Sound, we know that that's changing it as well. In Hawaii, we know that runoff there of different nutrients going into the ocean is affecting the coral reefs as well. So there's a lot of evidence for it in both the cold water, like the Bering uh, Sea, but also in, in, in other waters. And those nutrients might be going to other areas as, as, because that, those ecosystems are all tied together. So it's, it's extremely important that we, we look at it uh, holistically and make sure that um, we have solutions that are gonna protect our our seashores, which then protect our, our oceans and fisheries as well. Mm -hmm. And um, we had discussed also that there is a new designation for the uh, Northern Bering Sea Climate Resilience Area, and they've, they've uh, gotten uh, 
some of the oil drilling uh, to be uh, ended there under that and, and so forth. So apparently the hope, the hope is to create, um, create a sustainable um, environment to the degree possible with native traditional, uh, uh, traditional um, observations and management. Have you, have you worked with native tribes there on sort of larger scale issues and what they're trying to do to protect their environment? We, we have, and we work with some of, the, some of the corporations there. And what we're encouraging is a lot of the corporations that are up there have a, a commitment to sustainability and to um, United Nations strategic development goals. And some of them, not including sanitation, but also climate resilience, uh, life on land and the ocean as well. So rather than having them uh, purchase those credits outside of uh, that to territory, we're trying to encourage them to uh, invest back into, their, into those communities and to do that. So generally, a lot of them have a net uh, carbon footprint that they're looking to, and they need a carbon removal strategy as part of that. And biochar is a really good way to do that. And so by working uh, with some of these companies to do that and looking at sustainability as part of it and really investing back in the areas where you are taking the natural resources already, trying to um, repair the land and to kind of bring it back to Eden like it used to be uh, before we started up there. I think that's a good, good plan and a lot of the companies are there, but I think there needs to be easier pathways to do that. And if there was some policy and, and if sanitation was at least a, one of the major ones that we could get done, it seems like a simple one that, that we could get done quickly and gets done soon. Uh, as, as the world's trying to rush to these strategic development goals, it seems like at home here, we're, we're missing the mark and not taking care of the, the people that, uh, that have been here long before us. We're the most advanced society in the world, apparently. I keep hearing that. Right, but only in some areas. It's not for everyone. I think that's part of the, the not only the equality, but also the equity. And I think this is an equity issue that everyone should have access to a toilet, everyone should have safe sanitation, and everyone's waste uh, should be managed safely. And I think that's a basic thing, and uh, a lot of people in the United States don't have it, and we've got to do it here. Well, we've got a lot of listeners out there, so where can they go for more information, or how can they contact uh, you or the other okay. uh, organizations that you mentioned? Yeah, so for our website, we're at biomasscontrols.com, but to learn more about um, biochar, there's a USBI, United States Biochar Initiative, it's USBI.org, and also the IBI, the International Biochar Initiative, uh, that's based out of, out of Europe. Um, there's a lot of information on uh, SDG 6.2, which is from the United Nations, and also we've been graciously funded uh, through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, so they have a a site uh, dedicated to WASH, which is water sanitation and health and hygiene as well. So there's a lot of information out there. Uh, and I really would appreciate people focusing on decentralized sanitation and decentralized waste treatment as a, as a necessary solution that we need uh, as we move forward, or we're going to, uh, we're not going to be able to reverse the damage that we've done to our environment and to our climate. This is Robin Carneen of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for sitting by our campfire at Nature's Touch. Please join Robert Lindahl next time as he continues to share important conversations about climate change and other environmental issues. If you'd like to contact Robert, please email him at robert at studio-rla.com.
Be kind to Mother Earth. It's the only one we have. This has been Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. I'm your host, Robert Lundahl, filmmaker and journalist. Visit us at climatechangeishere.com for stories about human resilience and change, a film, a podcast series, a heroic journey into the future. Thank you.